Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Starting next week, at the end of each podcast, I'll be reading and responding to listener email. So if you have a comment or a follow-up question, email me at roberts at gmu.edu and put EconTalk in the subject line. My guest today is Walter Williams, my colleague here at George Mason University, where he is the John M. Owen Professor of Economics. Walter is a distinguished scholar and a superb teacher. Outside the classroom in his syndicated newspaper column, his website, and his work on TV and radio, Walter is one of a handful of economists who has helped Americans understand the economic way of thinking. Walter, welcome to EconTalk. Well, thank you very much. Walter, you've had a fascinating intellectual uh, journey as an economist and, and writer and thinker. How did that journey get started? Tell me a little bit about your intellectual influences in your youth and as you uh, matured as an economist. Well, I, I think in general, I've always been a, a radical in the sense that uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted people to leave me alone and I was willing to uh, leave them alone. But uh, in terms of uh, some of my ideas, uh, they were really uh, formulated, uh, I guess, uh, or refined when I was a, a graduate student at UCLA, uh, when I had some uh, some teachers just that just would uh, who would who wouldn't let me get away with nonsense, you know. Who were some of those folks? <coughs> who were well, some of them, well, I, I think one of my most tenacious mentors was uh, Armin Alshin, and he taught the economic uh, theory course. And he just didn't let anybody get away with any nonsensical statements. Uh, I was surely uh, one of the people who supported things like minimum wages. I thought it was a good idea, like like most Americans. And uh, seems one day, like a good idea. Yeah, it seems like it sounds like a good idea. And uh, and and on one occasion, uh, Armin Alshin, uh, he said, "Well, uh, if you support the minimum wage, uh, you know this will happen, that will happen, and so you just have to kind of evaluate, you know, the effects as opposed to looking at the intentions." I think one of the biggest lessons I got uh, talking to some of these uh, uh, scholars at UCLA was to look at the effects of, uh, of public policy as opposed to intentions. And I had other uh, uh, tenacious mentors like uh, uh, Axel Lanaverd and. Uh, uh, sat in on Dem sets. Matter of fact, when Milton Friedman uh, taught a course on monetary, he's a visiting professor. Mm -hmm. and I took I, actually, I didn't take his course. I audited the course because he was this great big giant, <laughs> and I was just afraid to take I to take his course. Yeah, that's a reasonable idea. So, and 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 I think that also UCLA was a was a, a excellent choice uh, for me. I kind of stumbled into the uh, department. Uh, uh, I didn't really initially plan to attend UCLA, but uh, a lady who was a friend of my father, she was uh, in a sorority, and uh, their sorority had a uh, essay contest uh, in combination with Seagram's Gin uh, to, you know, an essay to write an essay to win a scholarship. Wow! And so I uh, participated in the essay, and the judges were at UCLA, and. Um, I did not win the essay. I think I came in third or fourth, and I was leaving very disappointed. And there's a uh, Dr. Harold Summers. He ran after me down the hallway. He says, "Look, you you didn't win, but it doesn't cost that much to go to UCLA. You should register uh, and you should apply." And that's what I did. And and I got in, and I was, and I found out immediately that I was way over my head uh, uh, in terms of 
academic preparation uh, compared to the other students. And Not an uncommon experience in graduate <laughs> school for, for many people. I have to but I, I didn't know that. UCLA, I think at the time, was ranked uh, either 11th or 12th, uh, their economics departments. And, uh, and matter of fact, the, uh, when going through uh, uh, an interview, uh, Jack Hirschleifer, also one of my teachers, he was the graduate advisor at the time. Wonderful man. And and so uh, he was. He, his job was to uh, look over your uh, your you know the beginning graduate students' programs mm-hmm. to see whether they chose the right courses. And so I chose the right courses. And he asked me, did I have any other questions? And I said, no. I just feel a little bit um, apprehensive about starting. And so he looked at my uh, my folder and he says, uh, you should feel apprehensive. <laughs> and he, he said. You have a 3.1 grade point uh, uh, average in economics, and most of our students have three eights and three nines. And he is absolutely right. I, I should have been uh, apprehensive about starting there. Hmm. But it turned out okay. It turned out okay. Matter of fact, um, when I took the uh, PhD micro, they uh, at UCLA the micro and the macro uh, that constitutes one exam. Then you take uh, three other exams in, in areas. And uh, 16 people uh, took the micro exam, and 14 flunked. And I was among the 14 that flunked. And and I remember Axel uh, Laniford and Alshin. Uh, they uh, called me to their offices, and they told me that uh, my exam was among the worst, and that they felt that I could do much better. And they gave me a huge reading list to meet them in their office and to uh, read, and then uh, discuss it in their offices uh, every week. Mm. And uh, I did that for a semester, and I took the exam again, and I passed. So if it weren't for Seagram's Gin and the uh, perceptiveness of, of a couple useless economists, you, you might have done something different with your life. <laughs> I might have. I might have. I, at the time, I was working for the Los Angeles County Probation Department, and they had offered me a job as a probation officer. So <laughs> well, you probably would have made a fine one, but I'm glad, and most millions of people are glad you uh, ended up taking uh, the road less traveled. Um, talk about Armin Alchin for a minute. He's an underappreciated economist, in my opinion. Um, easily make a case he deserves a Nobel Prize. What were some of the, what was his class like? You said he, he didn't tolerate nonsense. I'm not surprised he would encourage you to point out some uh, of the full effects of a minimum wage rather than it was well-intentioned, but were there other aspects of his class I think they were a little unusual? Well, I, I, I think one of the um uh, the most unusual aspects of his classes was that he was very disorganized. <laughs> <laughs> he would come. He would come to class, and and many times he'd come to class. He's fumbling through his briefcase, uh, getting his lecture notes together. And as he's fumbling through his briefcase, uh, he would say, uh, he, "He used to pick on me a lot." He says, uh, "Williams, I bet you don't know such and such." And most times I did not know it at all. And one time, uh, to give you an idea of his teaching style. Uh, he asked the class, why do current generations build things that will long outlast their lives, and he, uh, their own personal lives? And he was given the example of the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm-hmm. He said, Genera- oh, the generations that built the Brooklyn Bridge, they're all dead now. And a lot, and of, them died, the, a lot of them died while they were building yeah, it, actually. I, I, it, was a, it was a brutal I, I know. construction project. I know. But the, the point that he was making is that, uh, that we enjoy right. the Brooklyn Bridge. And so he says, well, why did they do that? And so that question went around. He just spent a few minutes each week, and students would attempt to give the answer. He'd walk into class. Did anybody find the answer uh, to that? 
and uh, and they'd give an answer, and and he'd say, "Well, that's wrong," and you prove that is wrong. And then one time, I thought I had the answer, and I said, "Well, well, in order to build a bridge uh, that can handle a hundred thousand truck tons per hour, you can't. Uh, you know, durability is a uh, unavoidable uh, byproduct." I said, no, 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 no. Well, uh, during the uh, World War II, we used to build uh, pontoon bridges. Yep, correct. <laughs> that would handle it. <laughs> and so anyway, I, I guess maybe about four weeks later, somebody asked him, well, Professor Alshon, what's the answer? He says, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I want to see whether you know. Yeah, that's a nice, uh, that's a nice lesson for teachers. Yes, Not every yes. question has an answer, mm-hmm. and a lot of learning is is grasped by struggling to understand deep questions. I know your class has has that air about it too. You ask a lot of questions, you don't give the answers to. I suspect you know some of the answers, but you don't always share them with the students, right? No, I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> students find that frustrating, but I, I think that's a very good uh, that's a very good technique. Um, so you survived UCLA, and, yeah. and by the way, you're in great company, as I'm sure you know. In, in failing your first micro exam at a, at a great university. Sherwin Rosen, I know, also yes. flunked, and Milton Friedman, I think, told him to become a plumber or something. <laughs> That's the way Sherwin used to tell it. Uh, so you survived that. Uh, you survived that first year. In, in your words, you were unprepared, but you, mm-hmm. you survived it. Uh, and then you worked toward a, a dissertation Yes. and, and get out of UCLA and, and started your career. And what did you think at that time you were going to be out in the world as an economist? Uh, I don't think I gave it much thought. Uh, uh, <clears throat> James Buchanan was—he uh, visited a couple times at UCLA, and I took courses from him. And he recommended uh, me to uh, Harold Hockman, uh, who was mm-hmm. uh, in public finance, and he sure. had a unit at the, the, at the Urban Institute. Uh-huh. And so I was hired. Uh, uh, <clears throat> actually, they gave me a really plush deal. They—they uh, they, I only had to work half time on the projects. And I spend the rest of the time working on my dissertation. So Very when nice. I left UCLA, coming to Washington, I wasn't finished my dissertation, but uh, I worked half and half with uh, uh, Hal Hockman, you know, doing uh, some research and reading stuff, uh-huh. and uh, and then working on my dissertation. And I finally finished up in 1972. And at that point, you were going to be a academic economist, doing yeah. research and writing yeah. papers for. Fifteen or twenty people to read, and mm-hmm. if you're lucky, fifteen hundred. Yeah. Uh, but you took a different path. You became really a public spokesman for economic understanding uh, in such a stellar way. How did that come about? Did you plan it? Uh, and looking back on that evolution, how, how do you feel about it? what got you interested in in reaching a broader audience rather than just your fellow economists in, yeah. in academia? Well, I took a. I, I think I got uh, interested. In, um, actually, it goes way back. Um, uh, some of the ideas of writing for the uh, intelligent uh, layman. But I took a job at Temple University. I was. I, I didn't like working for the Urban Institute. In uh, 1973, I went to Temple University, and in 1976, while I was at Temple University, a fellow um, named Al Morris. He was uh, the new president of the Philadelphia Tribune. Which is a, uh, I think it's the oldest uh, independently owned black newspaper in Philadelphia, and he said he's trying to change the focus of the paper, and he wondered whether I would write a uh, a weekly column for him, and so that's when I started writing a weekly column. This is 1976-77. What you write about? Do you remember? Oh, uh, just you know, applied economics, uh-huh. applied economics, and then um, 
another fellow, and I, I think it was 1980, uh, he told me that, uh, well, uh, if I really want to write them for the public, I ought to become syndicated because nobody reads the uh, Philadelphia Tribune, not that many people. And he's absolutely right. And so, but you did it anyway. Yes. And so <clears throat> that's when I became syndicated. But, but one of the ideas when I, when I write a column... One of the things I think about, and I think one of the uh, one of my inspirations turned out to be Armin Alsh. And uh, we were um, having a faculty graduate student coffee hour one day, and we used to stand out in the hallway, and he used to needle me. And, um, <laughs> and oh, we lucky you! Yeah, <laughs> he was chatting. You weren't alone. You huh? may have felt that way at the time, but I, I, no, I, no, he no. He, uh, yeah, he was equal opportunity needler. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's my memory. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, he was telling me. He says, you know, Walter. The true test of when, whether anyone understands his subject is when he can explain it to, to someone who doesn't know a damn thing about it. Yeah, and uh, and and I just I, I didn't think very much of that statement right then, but I thought of it. Uh, I, I thought of it a whole lot uh, since, and and I delight in being able to take roughly six hundred words and explain. Um, potentially complex uh, economic ideas without the uh, jargon, so that the ordinary person can uh, can understand. And I, and one of the best ways I think of teaching uh, a subject is to be able to give examples, simple examples that uh, people can easily understand. Metaphors and other other things. I think mm-hmm. that's that's definitely true. And I remember uh, speaking again, uh, going back to Alshon. I remember one conversation he was having. And this is maybe I was second year graduate student, and I was chatting with him, and and I was trying to impress him uh, with my understanding of the uh, of the type one, type two errors, and in so, statistics. Yeah, in statistics, yes. And I was telling him that the uh, basic difference between um, my wife and me was that uh, she has an attitude that that everyone everybody is her friend until they prove differently. And uh, and I explained to Armin Alshin, well, she maximizes the number of friends she has, but she uh, uh, she also maximizes the chances for injury to get yeah. hurt. And so I said, I, yeah, I'm different. I assume that everybody's my enemy until they prove differently. And so, of course, I minimize the number of friends I have, but I also minimize the uh, chance of uh, some of betrayal. So he said, he 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 looked at me. He said, Walter, you know, uh, have you considered a third opportunity, a third alternative? He said, have you considered that people might not give a damn about you one way or the other? <laughs> I was a little bit crushed. Yeah, because no, it's a very nice example. And as someone who has trouble yeah. remembering the difference between type 1 and type 2 errors, I think that's a beautiful uh, way of thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, and, and he's absolutely right. Uh, I, I try to, on, uh, I mean, if I drop dead, how many people will cry? I mean, the average person, you know, you know people don't, don't care about you. That's a safe operating assumption. That that most people they don't give a damn about you one way or the other. Yeah, it's it's hard for us to keep that straight as human beings. Uh, each of us sees ourselves as sort of a center of the universe, and you know when someone doesn't return our call, say, mm-hmm. or return an email, we just say, oh my gosh, they don't like what I sent them, they're offended. Yeah. Most of the time, just they forgot about it. They're yeah. not thinking about you quite as much as you're thinking about yourself, and mm-hmm. that that is a very uh, unfortunate or not, but a deep truth about about humanity. Mm-hmm. But I like that. Um, that that description of you and your wife has that stayed true over the years? Uh, Do you, probably is that your not. best working uh, model of, of humanity? Uh, no, I I, I think it, in, in terms of uh, the uh, of our Alshin's uh, third alternative, I think that's my operating 
assumption about sure. humanity that people don't give a damn one way or the other. And so I don't assume that people are my enemies or friends. And and the most of the times I look at people as human beings. Uh, and you're whatever you are after that. Of course, in economics, one of the beautiful things about it is our um, understanding of mixed motives. People have multiple things going on at the same time. It is simple to assume mm. everyone's your friend or everyone's your enemy, but it is, yeah. it is a little more complex. Uh, there, there's, there's always a mixture of, of both, and some people just don't pay any attention to you whatsoever, which would mm-hmm. be the modal, yeah. the modal response. And, and perhaps uh, and, and maybe that's preferred. Uh, yeah, it's not bad. Works yeah. pretty well. It's a good. It's a good life we have. Yeah. Uh, as long as we have a few friends. Um, so, from that small newspaper column at the Tribu- Philadelphia Tribune, yes, uh, you turn to become a syndicated columnist and uh, and have a much wider uh, effect on on the world. Yes, about 140 newspapers, and this fellow Carlos Ball, who uh, translates it into Spanish for about, uh, I think, about 10 or 12 uh, Latin American papers, and sometimes it's even carried in Spain. So you've been doing that for Mm. a quarter of a century, right? About 25 years? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a syndicated fashion, and you still like it? Oh, yeah, I love it. Uh, uh, And one of the great benefits... Uh, to writing a syndicated column that's broadly distributed is that uh, I I get a lot of mail. And the mail makes me a more informed, a a better person because I get responses to uh, columns. Well, have you ever thought about it this way? Mm -hmm. Or back when I was coming up, we did such and such. You know, examples or or people say, well, you're wrong about this and, and this is why. Well, those criticisms... Uh, and and also comments they they make me a more informed person. Um, uh, uh, one one example of this is just a little tiny example. I was writing a column about uh, the the gas gouging uh, uh, story after uh, Her- Hurricane uh, Katrina, and I was pointing out that uh, well higher prices uh, give uh, producers inducement to uh, uh, produce more, and it gives uh, uh, demand uh, demanders inducement to consume less. And a fellow just wrote me a, a, a letter. He says, uh, you're absolutely right, because these uh, in Appalachia, they're starting up uh, small oil wells that uh, mm. never, uh, you know, they might get 20 barrels a day, but with the higher prices, it's worth it. Yeah. It makes sense. And so I, I would not have known of that right. example. Right. The range uh, of human innovation response yes. to prices and incentives. Yeah. I, every once in a while, I get one of those where uh-huh. you, you, someone ex- tells you something, you just didn't realize or had no knowledge of. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Of course, some of them aren't quite that constructive. Mm-hmm. Some of your mail and email, I assume, is a little less <laughs> oh, constructive. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is, yes. Let's um, get your share of, um, as a radical, mm-hmm. you occasionally, I, I would think, uh, raise a hackle or two. Oh, oh and many, and many hackles. Uh, I get, uh, and some of the mail is just ugly. They, uh, It's almost like, I, I think about it, well, these people are really complaining about, uh, for example, the law of gravity. You know, right, if, sure. if somebody falls off the building, uh, uh, hardly anybody would complain about the law of gravity. But, however, if prices go up or prices go down, they would complain about the law of demand, yeah. which is uh, uh, just as immutable as the law of gravity. Yeah, uh, that's um, that's a human, um, strange aspect of humanity. 
probably due to a lack of economic understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Most people don't really understand the law of gravity. I'm not even sure anybody really understands it. it's a bizarre law in itself that mass mm-hmm. and somehow attracts stuff. We don't really understand it, but we've internalized it. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that if you drop something, it falls. Mm-hmm. I haven't quite figured out that market forces thing yet, uh, which is uh, which is unfortunate. Walter, what what topics do you write on that that engender the most controversy? Well, I think there, there, are, there are a couple of topics that I write on that um, that at least used to generate a lot of uh, a lot, lot of ugly mail. Uh, one was um, uh, agricultural subsidies, mm-hmm. and I would get all kinds of mail. You're for them, right? Uh, <laughs> against. Them. Oh, you're against them. Oh, okay. Why is that? Don't you think America needs a stable food supply? Well, I would say. Are farmers yeah. the backbone of our nation? Well. I, I would think that uh, it's immoral to take one person's money and give it to another person for any reason, uh, good reason or bad reason. Uh, and, and, and you have to look at the secondary effects of uh, agricultural subsidies where you have uh, surpluses and, uh, and create some uh, set of incentives that aren't very, very uh, productive. But anyway, I used to get uh, some ugly mail from that. Would those be from farmers? Yeah, mostly from farmers. <laughs> Strangely enough, yes. yeah. And then the next topic that I would get ugly mail, the, I guess maybe ranking uh, second, would be uh, writing on Social Security. And sure, I would you hate be, old people. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what they Like see them starve to death, dying street. And I would get letters, and you could see the shaky handwriting yeah. telling me I'm going to die and go to hell. You're going to die and go to hell. That's <laughs> a comfort. Uh, and the uh, you get the typewriter with the little missing spots in the... In the in the typing, I used to get that. Yeah, well, yeah. Sometimes with the uh, well, where they haven't clean, where they haven't yeah. cleaned the keys for quite a while. Um, you also, I think, have a rather radical view. <laughs> you have a ra- I think you also have a rather radical view of uh, of the Civil War and the right of secession. It, yeah. it is uncommon. Is that is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, well, it's it's only radical today, but it was not radical at the founding of our country, and I'm very sure that uh, if states did not feel as though they had the right to secede, then I, I doubt whether the Constitution would have been ratified. Uh, if you look at the um, at the documents, um, at the uh, yeah, or the discussion at the uh, various um, uh, hearings on the Constitution at the state level, um, when they were deciding to ratify the Constitution, uh, states such as Virginia. And I believe New York and Rhode Island, they actually have it in the in their ratification document that if the federal government becomes abusive of the powers that we have delegated to it, we have the right to resume those powers. And uh, and additionally, the entire secession movement it started in the New England states uh, during the 18 teens, and because many of the New England states were uh, dissatisfied with uh, Thomas Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase, and they were trying to organize a secession movement there. And I think that the idea of having the right to secede, uh, it, well, it stems from two base, I think, two basic premises. That is, uh, people, uh, matter of fact, the Declaration of Independence talks about self-government, the, the right to self-government. Um, but moreover, uh, the Treaty of Paris of 1783 that ended the war between the uh, between Great Britain and the colonies, uh, the it established each colony as a sovereign nation. 
that is, New York was a nation, Pennsylvania was a nation. And in 1787, uh, having the Articles of Confederation having not been very uh, uh, desirable, they came together and, uh, and, and, and created, uh, they came together as principals and made the federal government their agent. And uh, from what I understand, principals have the right to fire their agents. Absolutely. Or it has no meaning. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. You're, you're, you're a slave or a serf or a, to a master rather than a principal agent. That's right. And, and I think that uh, many people misunderstand uh, the war between the states. And actually, you shouldn't call it a civil war because a civil war, the implication of a civil war is that there are two or more parties trying to take over the central government. And Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, he no more wanted to take over Washington, D.C. than George Washington wanted to take over London. Uh, it was a more or less a uh, both both were wars of independence, and moreover, um, since the victors of a war write the history of the war, uh, the idea the idea of, uh, among the American people is that the war was fought to end slavery. Clearly, was not. Was and, no, it was not. Um, uh, the matter of fact, the conditions of the war were uh, some of the conditions of the war were were in uh, eighteen thirty one were laid in eighteen thirty one. With the uh, tariff, what they what they call the tariff of abominations, that is the northern states, uh, they imposed uh, uh, tariff restrictions, very much like the navigation acts that the founders uh, that the uh, that led to uh, the, the the Revolutionary War, the first War of Independence. So you see it more, less a moral crusade as rather an, an economic uh, economic. So a form of economic imperialism. Yes, absolutely. And then also, if the if if the um, take some of the romance out of it. Oh, yes, it does. Yes, and 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 we're still living with the effects of the of the uh, war between the states. The uh, today, that is, uh, once it is decided that states could not cannot secede, uh, and that was decided uh, in a very very bloody fashion, then. The federal government can do whatever they want to the states because the threat of secession uh, acts as a control sure. on, the, on what the federal government can do. I, I give the examples like if, if, if you told uh, my wife that she could not divorce me, right. then I can treat her any way yeah, I want. It's not an attractive situation. Yeah. Especially if it's one way. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so that's a very interesting and, and to me appealing Way of looking at the at the war between the states, uh, but it did have the perhaps unintended consequence of freeing the slaves. Yes, and uh, the human uh, benefit of that, of course, it also had a grotesque human toll. Yes, uh, to accomplish that result, whether it was intended or not, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of dead and wounded. Uh, we have to keep in mind that there was slavery in the Caribbean. There's slavery in South America. And the uh, and I think I believe my history I could have my history wrong, but the uh, the war uh, in the United States was the most brutal fashion of ending slavery. Right, it ended peacefully in many places. Yes. I guess the the question would be how long might it have endured in mm -hmm. the absence of Lincoln's uh, decision. And and I think there's something else that one has recognized is that slavery was already dying a, a natural death. That is in the old South. Uh, slavery was withering away because it was no longer profitable, uh, and you found that slave owners 
they were renting their slaves out. Matter of fact, Frederick, Frederick Douglass uh, was uh, he was working for somebody else other than his owner, and he is just to give his owner uh, a, a certain amount of money each month. And uh, and uh, and some people who have studied it, uh, I forget the two fellows who wrote Time on the Cross, Fogel and Angerman. Yeah. And they said that Texas was the natural boundary for slavery. Slavery would not have been profitable uh, further uh, further west than uh, Texas. So it's a very but, radical view yeah. and very controversial uh, among some. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned earlier that it takes the romance out of the Civil War. We have a tremendous amount of emotional and um, psychological romance around this alleged moral crusade mm-hmm. ex post. Some ex-ante was, was invoked at the time, but a lot of it, of course, was a post-war, as you say, the victors write the history. Uh, when you talk about this this way and you break romance or try to shatter illusions, people must get very upset. Yeah, oh, yes. Especially African-Americans, I assume, who, who uh, have a, don't find that perspective very very attractive, or or even a lot of Republicans. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> they, they get I upset. I'm sure, and and I you know when I point out that the war really wasn't about slavery. And matter of fact, if you read the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Proclamation that is, people will say Lincoln freed the slaves. Right. But if you read the Emancipation Doc, uh, uh, Proclamation, it said uh, Lincoln freed the slaves, and it says in the document. Only in those states that are in rebellion against the Union. Right. And so, uh, and matter of fact, they, uh, they actually went to list various parishes where slaves are free, in Louisiana, where slaves were freed there but weren't freed in other parishes because those other parishes were on the side of the Union. And I, for, I forget. Well, he was a cautious politician in some dimensions, <laughs> right? He was being real careful there. Well, well, what it was, the war was going very badly at the time of mm-hmm. the uh, proclamation, and they were fearful that England and France might come in on the side of the Confederacy, and they, England and France, uh, they were anti-slavery, and so uh, Lincoln, I, I think he was playing politics. Sure. Uh, and then I believe one, either his Secretary of State or Secretary of Treasury, I, I, I forget which one, he told Lincoln, he admonished, the, he chastised Lincoln. He says, look, we freed slaves where we cannot free them <laughs> and failed to free them where we can. That is in states like Maryland and Pennsylvania and Delaware where there was uh, uh, ongoing slavery uh, there, but they weren't, uh, they weren't freed. So really, um, kind of sums it up. Yes, as as a uh, one in a long line of uh, politically expedient. Yes, but high minded, high high minded sounding mm-hmm. uh, uh, proclamation. But again, it did end slavery ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whether it would have ended another way is, a, I guess, a more complicated question. I want to go back to agricultural subsidies um, for a couple reasons. I was. Uh, it is an area I think that. We have romance about as well that farmers are the backbone of the nation. We have this image of um, American Gothic, the, the sturdy farmer with his pitchfork, his his um, dutiful or uh, strong Midwestern wife. And yet, in reality, farm subsidies go to very wealthy folks who often do very little for them. As, as you point out, they often are paid not to do anything, which is a really remarkable thing. I was explaining to my 
uh, eight-year-old son where our taxes go. He was fascinated by the idea that that you had to pay taxes. It seemed he was appalled by it, which I found mm-hmm. comforting. And when I told him that so one of the things that it did, we did with the money, was to give it to people to not do things. He, he was baffled by that, and really, it's it's hard mm-hmm. to explain to an eight-year-old why uh, we would do something that remarkably strange. But I, I was thinking about it because I saw an interview with you and the new individualist, which we'll put a link up to uh, at Econ Talk where you talked about an insight of, of Hayek's, about a conversation you had with, with Friedrich Hayek about the one law that, that, he would, that he would put in place if he could. Can you, can you talk about that? Uh, yes. Uh, matter of fact, I, I believe it was like, in, um, I was teaching at George Mason University, and, uh, and, and I think me and uh, J- Jack Hayek and I, we went to dinner with Hayek. And I asked him, I said, uh, if you had one law, uh, that uh, would uh, help promote liberty in America. If you could write one law that would that could help promote liberty in America, what would it be? And he said that oh, that's easy. He says I would en- enact a law uh, requiring that Congress do if Congress does anything for one American, they must do it for all Americans. And he gave the example of uh, of uh, of not raising pigs. He says uh, if if a uh, if uh, Congress pays one American to not raise pigs, well, they ought to give every American a subsidy who is not raising pigs. And, and of course, if you did that, there, there would probably be no uh, pig subsidy at all. Yeah, it would be the end of it. It would be yeah, the right. whole point of it, which yeah, is right. to reward a mm-hmm. small group of politically connected people yeah. at the expense of the average person who's yeah. unaware or whose burden of that law is, is relatively small, so they don't make a stink about it. It's just yeah. a beautiful And we, ch- we chatted about, about it, and I, and I was talking about steel. I, I mentioned steel support. I said, that's a wonderful idea. I said, uh, would you also apply it? That is, if, you give, if the Congress gives one American a right to keep out uh, foreign imports in order to raise higher prices, uh, you know, to raise his prices domestically, they ought to do it for every American. That is, to keep out foreign economists. So, <laughs> so, so which, which Mr. Hayek was, uh, coincidentally. Yes, right. Did he, he find that amusing? Well, yes, he did. he did. <laughs> what was he like? Oh, he was a very gentle man, um, a very kind man, and very much like Milton Friedman in some respects. Uh, that is, uh, Milton Friedman, if you, if you say something... Um, that's really not right. Milton Friedman is like everybody's uncle. He'll say, uh, he'll say, Walter, you really didn't mean that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> and then he'll explain, you know. And the same thing, uh, the, uh, Hayek was uh, the uh, same, uh, same, uh, same way in terms of explaining things. You know, like everybody's uncle, very, very kind and gentle and smart man. And as you talk to him, uh, as, as I spoke to him, you, you get the feeling that he wasn't really telling you everything that he knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was kind of like maybe telling you, an, you, you, you. One got the impression, at least I did. He was telling me enough that I could understand. That if he told me more, I could not understand. Uh-huh. It was. It, it reminded me a lot of times with with uh, uh, conversations I had with Edward Teller when I was a, a national fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, he had an office next door to me. And and I've always been very interested in subatomic physics, and uh, I'm not good at it, 
but uh, I went to the, uh, I used to, uh, I made friends with the people at Stanford Linear Accelerator, and I used to go up there and, and talk to them. Anyway, I used to go back uh, and ask uh, Edward Teller a question. He had almost sit me on his knee and explain it to me in a very simple way, and then he'd give me a bunch of books uh, that I should read on the subject. Uh-huh. But he, he just, he kind of felt that, well, if he really, really explained it, I would never understand it. But he knew how to give you a taste of it. Yeah, right. And, and matter of fact, one, 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 one of the, he used to say, uh, ask me when I uh, was explaining something that went on to the, um, went on at the uh, Sanford Linear Accelerator. He says, have you been fooling around with those guys who uh, get engaged with particle pr- proliferation? That's what he called it. <laughs> particle proliferation. Yeah, right. Yeah, because that's what they do. They, they, you know, they bombard particles. They send them and at closer speed out. of light, and, yeah. they, and they just get all kinds of particles, and they give them different names. And he called it particle pr- proliferation. <laughs> <laughs> Promiscuity in physics, I guess. Uh, yes. Very funny. <laughs> Well, your office is next to mine, Walter. I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing. I'm interviewing you here in your office, but but it's a very short uh, commute for me today to come from my office. And I, I want to tell our our listeners that I've learned a lot from you, uh, being your neighbor. But I want to highlight a few of, of the deepest things I've learned from from you that have stuck with me and that I share with my students that I think um, our our listeners would enjoy as well. Now, I'm going to paraphrase these. You're going to have to correct me. And I, what I'm going to do is I'd like to give you some of these insights I've learned from you. You correct me if, if you need to, and then okay. I'd like to hear why, what you were trying to get across with them. The uh, first one is, I don't tell my grocery when I'm coming. I don't tell the grocery what I'm going to buy. I don't tell them how much I'm going to buy. But if they don't have what I want when I get there, I fire them. Right. Uh, that's uh, that's one of the wonders of the marketplace. and. Um, and actually, I talk about it when, I'm ta- when I talk to the students about um, market clearing prices, uh, which is, uh, you know, people just kind of, I think, carelessly say market clearing prices as if there's an equilibrium. And I tell them, well, look, uh, uh, if there were market clearing prices, when you got to the grocery store, there would be nothing on the shelves right. because the market would be cleared. And I tell them, well, here's what happens. I say that we all um, proposition our grocer in the following fashion. We say to them, we're not going to tell you when we're going to shop. We're not going to tell you what we're going to buy. We're not going to tell you the quantity uh, we're going to buy. But we'll, I will fire you if you don't have what I have when I have what I want when I do come into the store. And so the way the grocer responds, he says, "Okay, you're going to be that way. I'm going to have to uh, carry inventories and buffer stocks, and you're going to pay." Sure. And you're going to pay higher than the market. What would be the market clearing price? And we're happy for that because the cost of a surprise empty shelf is very costly. Yes. So we're happy to pay a small premium above that mm-hmm. and let people compete partially through pies, mm-hmm. but partially yes. through these other amenities, which yeah. I, it's just such a deep insight into how uh, the market works. But, but it's simple that yeah. everybody can understand. And, and, and I tell people, I tell my students that the, that the most important, the, the, one of the great things about economics is its simplicity and that uh, and anything that uh, that's worth knowing about economics is indeed uh, quite simple and um and and I think that uh, that particular example you can explain to anybody that is you can explain it to your grandmother you know who hasn't uh, graduated from high school and she can understand it what i love about it is it forces my students to think about the relationship they have with their grocer which mm-hmm. is they tend to think of it as adversarial mm-hmm. uh from i think popular culture and and other sources, but your grocer is serving you 
you want those higher prices in that buffer stock and those inventories because you don't want to be surprised. And unless you've lived in a country like Cuba or the former Soviet Union where empty shelves are the norm rather than stock shelves, it's hard to appreciate yeah. the miracle that anytime we want to buy something, it's sitting there waiting for us. They've anticipated yeah. what we want, and it's just, it's just there. Yeah, it's right. And, and, the, and the point of the... Uh, the buffers and inventories, and, and, and that example, I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about it, but it, it's a way of economizing on information costs. That is, the grocer just does not have the information when you're going to come and shop, what you're going to buy. And so that's one of the way he responds to, to, the, uh, to, this, uh, app, to the fact that information is costly. And that's a very Hayekian point, uh, yeah. that information is, the acquiring of information is costly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't even gather that information if it were technologically feasible mm-hmm. because you might not know what you want two days from now. That's right. right? You couldn't say, here's my order in advance. We love the idea that we could just walk in and decide we want a particular kind of ice cream today because we're in the mood for it or we want to get some low-carb thing because we've mm-hmm. decided that's good for us or we want to eat vegetarian or whatever it is. And they're ready for all of it, yeah. pretty much. It's kind of it's and, an incredible and, and, thing. And it's amazing, furthermore, if you recognize that the well-stock supermarket in the United States uh, has over 80,000 different items in the store. Which is slightly higher than it was, say, 50 years ago. Yes, Or yes. even 25 years ago or 20 oh, yes. years ago. And we have friends who, who visit us once in a while from, from, uh, from Stockholm. And, 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 and once in a while, the uh, Brigitte goes shopping with my wife, Connie. And she often looks at our supermarket like uh, like she's in Disneyland. Sure. I mean, and here's Sweden is a developed country, right. but they don't have the kind of variety and the cheap prices that we have in our country. Right. That's an amazing. That's a great story. Um, point number two, another insight. Through most of human history, you got rich by stealing from your neighbor, plunder taking something that belonged to somebody else, knocking them over the head, grabbing their stuff, and that's how you got rich. But it's only recently you can get rich by serving your fellow man. Yes, I, I frequently point that out. Uh, and, yeah, you know, you're right. That is, th- uh, throughout most kinds, uh, most of man's kind, mankind's history, uh, the wealth and the means to great wealth was through plundering and looting and, and enslaving your fellow man. Today, uh, with a free market, let's say with free markets, it's possible to become wealthy by pleasing your fellow man, making your fellow man happy, and getting him to voluntarily uh, part with his money. You take a multi-billionaire like Bill Gates. Well, why is he rich? I mean, did he did he uh, plunder anybody? Did he take anything for anybody? No, he, he produced a product that uh, that satisfied me, and I was willing to walk out of my house and voluntarily voluntarily. Plunk down three hundred dollars for Windows, or plunk down three hundred dollars for some other uh, software program. Now it's kind of interesting that um, many of the people who would criticize the wealth of people like Bill Gates and want to redistribute, uh, redistribute it, um, what they're really doing, what they're really saying, is that they disagree with the outcome. That was a result of millions upon millions of independent decision makers. That is, all these people voluntarily agreed to give Bill Gates uh, uh, two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars for uh, for the product that he produced. Well, they're saying I disagree with that. I disagree with the outcome uh, that uh, that is a result of the, these uh, independent decisions, uh, decision makers, and I want to alter that outcome by taking some of his money. 
Yeah, it's at the root of this also the root of this bizarre idea that that Bill Gates or Sam Walton when he was alive or whoever there is the rich man of the day has to give something back as if somehow he took something. Yeah. He, he, <laughs> he, he as if he stole something. Yeah. He's free to give mm-hmm. something away if he chooses to be charitable as Bill Gates has. Mm-hmm. I assume partly because it gives him satisfaction, maybe partly for his public image. Who knows mm-hmm. what, what the complex reasons are for that. But the idea that there's something immoral about accumulating wealth in a voluntary way. There is something immoral about accumulating wealth in an involuntary way, coercing yeah. people, enslaving them, stealing from them. Mm-hmm. But people who made a product that made people's lives better yeah. are somehow immoral. It's a shocking and, 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 thing. And the people, I think one of the things that we, we should recognize about the, uh, the market and, very, and people became very wealthy through the market is that they made it possible for the common man to have things that only the wealthy could afford years ago. That is, uh, the wealthy people have had uh, have always had somebody to uh, beat out their rugs, carry the rugs outside the house and beat them up with a broom. But it was the vacuum cleaner that spared the common man from uh, this kind of drudgery. But only the top 1% huh? of Americans, have, they have, since the top 1% have all the money in America, Walter, only yeah. they are the ones who can have vacuum cleaners, right? <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's not true. No? We, they're no. selling to average people? <laughs> to average people. It's like people. those grocery stores with 80,000 things in them. Mm-hmm. A lot of everyday people shop in there, not just the rich folks. That is absolutely right. Or, or the, the, the rich have always had entertainment, sometimes entertainment in their homes or at their castle. Well, it was the radio and the television, the marketing of the radio and the television that brought this amenity to the ordinary man. And the, and, and the market has provided for the ordinary man that things that, that, that the rich uh, a half century ago uh, could not have. Uh, you know, microwave ovens, uh, cell phones. Uh. And matter of fact, if you look at poverty in our country, uh, you look at some of the statistics, uh, 60% of the people that uh, the Bureau of Census defines as poor uh, own one car, and 14% of them own two or more cars. Uh, 90% have microwave. Uh, the, uh, the I think somewhere around 80% have air conditioners. And, and so... The luxuries of the past, or even unavailable in the past to wealthy people, as you point out, right? That is absolutely right. Matter of fact, uh, if you were an unborn spirit, spirit, and God said, I condemn you to a life of poverty, but I'm going to let you choose the country in which you're, you're going to be poor in, I'm guessing that most unborn spirits would say United States, or at least the Western world. Well, they, they act as if that's true, even after they're born. Yeah. Uh, the traffic at the Mexican... American border tends mm-hmm. to go north. Yeah, Cuban, yeah, yeah. Cubans are trying to get out of Cuba. Americans <laughs> aren't trying to break in. It's yeah. a strange thing. It, yeah. It's forgotten when there's a situation like Elian Gonzalez. Everyone talks about the yeah. virtues of growing up in Cuba, but yeah. most people don't try to break into Cuba to raise their children there mm-hmm. in that non-material yeah. state. Nor do they try to break in from South Korea to North Korea. Correct. Or at the time, uh, West Berlin to East yeah. Berlin. The guards all face in one direction. <laughs> Funny right. how that works. The final point I wanted to ask you about is a, a wonderful insight I that maybe you'll talk a little bit about the morality of, of capitalism that we've been talking about already. I think I heard you say something like at a speech you gave that if you want to get potatoes from Idaho to New York City, which is a really unpleasant thing, you got to get up early and grow potatoes. you got to weed them and harvest them and fertilize them and whatever else you have to do. But you really want to make sure that they get to New York City, where they don't grow very naturally. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of concrete and pavement there. Uh, 
would you want the farmer who gets up at 5.30 in the morning to be motivated by love for you or love for himself, a profit motive? And well, You said the profit motive, and uh, well, I think you're right. And, and, well, I, I guess to explain it a little further, I said... Um, say it uh, better. I said that I, I often ask people, what human motivation gets the most wonderful things done? And I said, uh, I tell them that if you ask me, I say greed. Greed is a wonderful human motivation that gets wonderful things done. Now, when I say greed, I don't mean, you know, uh, robbing and product misrepresentation, fraud and all those things. I'm talking about uh, people trying to get more for themselves. And I give, give the example, I ask people, well, I tell people, last winter we had Texas cattle farm, uh, cattle ranchers, they're getting up in the dead of winter, running down stray cows in the snow, making sure that they are fed, and they're making this huge personal sacrifice so that New Yorkers will have beef on their shelves. Uh, you have Idaho potato farmers getting up in the crack of dawn, doing back-breaking work, the sun beating down on their dirty fingernails, uh, 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 and they're making this personal sacrifice to make sure New Yorkers also get uh, uh, have potatoes on the shelves. And I ask people, why do you think they're doing that? I said that, do you think it's because they love New Yorkers? I say, no, they love themselves. And one of the great benefits of the free market is that to have a greater claim on what your fellow man produces, you have to first serve him. And the uh, the farmers uh, and, and the cattle uh, ranchers, they, they might not give a damn about New Yorkers. They might hate New Yorkers. And I tell people I'm not that wild about New Yorkers myself. <laughs> uh, but they I make sure Philadelphia. that... Yes, yeah. right. They make sure that beef and, get, beef and potatoes gets in New York every single day of the week. And then I come back with a question. I ask people, well, uh, how much beef and potatoes do you think New Yorkers would have if it all depended on human love and kindness? And I tell them, I would feel sorry for New Yorkers. And, but however, that little example, it explains in a, I, I guess, a very understandable way, uh, Adam Smith's uh, uh, statement in the, uh, in, in the uh, inquiry into the wealth and cause, uh, inter, inquiry into the causes of wealth of nations. Is that right? Uh, it, it's more the, complicated than that. I think it's into the nature and cause. The nature and We'll get it right. Okay, I don't know by heart. But Don Boudreau knows it. Okay, our, good. Our chairman. He knows it by heart. But we'll, uh, okay. we'll get it but, right on the way. But let's say the wealth of nations. Well, yeah. Uh, what Adam Smith says in the wealth of nations, he says, well, the reason that we get our bread from the baker and our candle from the candlestick maker, uh, the way that we get it is to appeal to their self-interest. As opposed, as opposed to our own self-interest. And then also, he says uh, that the public good is promoted by the private interest, uh, is promoted best by the private interest. And it's, it's, that's abundantly clear. That is, a, uh, I think it's a wonderful thing that you have an automobile. But do you have an automobile because a Detroit assembly line worker cares about uh, Russ Roberts? No. He doesn't give a damn about it. And maybe if you met, you might hate one another. Right. But nonetheless, you have that automobile, automobile because he cares about himself. And this is what I mean. Uh, that uh, This is why I say that greed gets the wonderful things done. Now, some people say, well, William Sinch is trying to win friends and influence people. Instead of using greed, why don't you say enlighten self-interest? Well, enlighten self-interest. Sugar-coated, self Walter. Okay. <laughs> but I like greed. Greed is more descriptive. 
Yeah, and it's um, it grabs the attention of the listener, mm-hmm. makes makes you think a little bit about your preconceptions about how the world works, and of course. You don't just get more toys, more cars, and more iPods, and more. We do get those things, and they're wonderful. But we also live longer and have more health care, and can afford all kinds of things, and live mm-hmm. to see our great grandchildren. And it, it, it's a good world, that mm-hmm. free market world. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Well, we're almost out of time. I just want to close by asking about one of the episodes we, we have not touched on, which is uh, your role here at, at George Mason University, which is a very unusual economics department, uh, very much in the spirit of. Uh, the UCLA you talked about earlier of 25, 30 years ago, but not so much the modern departments of today. Mm-hmm. Here at George Mason, we're very interested in applying economics to the real world. And uh, that's unusual uh, to some extent, which is strange, but it's unusual. And you were chairman of this department for six years. And I have to confess, I, I wasn't here then. I'm fascinated by that. You don't strike me as chairman material, Walter. I have to be mm-hmm. blunt about it. <laughs> uh, a herder of cats and... and um, uh, uh, liaison to the administration of the university, but you did that for six years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, what was that like? Well, f- well, first, um, when when several of my colleagues uh, asked me, this is like 1994, uh, would I consider being uh, department chairman? And I just immediately laughed in their face. Uh, I would not dream of being department chairman. And they 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 kept after after me. So what I did. I have a very good friend, close friend, and colleague, uh, Thomas Sowell, and so I called him up and I said, to, I asked him, I said, um, uh, Tom, if you had heard that Walt Williams became chairman of the economics department, would you finally conclude that he's lost completely his marbles? <laughs> and so I was very uh, shocked by Tom Sowell's response. And well, he asked me, how long have I been teaching here? And so um, I said, 14 years. And so he said, it's probably your turn. Mm-hmm. I was talking to him, expecting to get a very good answer to give my colleagues why right. I would not become chairman. And so anyway, I, I thought about it. Um, and uh, and I decided to become uh, at Stanford election. And my colleagues elected me. And our department at that time was really under siege by the administration. Um, to give you an idea... When um, when James Buchanan won the Nobel Prize, uh, we had, in 1986, I think we had 26 faculty members. Uh, when I became chairman, we had 18. Wow. And, um, and what the uh, university was doing, uh, they were uh, not allowing us to fill positions uh, when uh, faculty members... Retirement member, and exit, yeah. Yeah, exit. And they were using our positions uh, to uh, fund other nonsense on college uh, on the college campus. Uh, for one example, uh, the uh, the uh, New Century College. Uh, they were using some of our positions to fund that. And New Century College, uh, to give you an idea of it, uh, at least at the time, they had courses like uh, HIV AIDS awareness and. Habitat for the Humanities and, and that kind of non experiential uh, <laughs> education, we call it. It's called, yeah. it's called living. That's right. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think they did have such a course, experiential uh, something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I conclude that the only way that, that I'm going to uh, uh, develop our department was to privatize it. And so um, I went out and I started uh, doing uh, fundraising 
and raise considerable amount of money for the department to be able to hire uh, people, uh, visiting professors. I, matter of fact, I hired Pete, Pete, Pete Betke a couple times as visiting professor and Mario uh, Rizzo. Uh, and I was able to give uh, travel money to faculty and, and summer research money and, and, uh, and a number, like I think one time I had 18 student uh, graduate student fellowships that I was giving. And... Um, and eventually started building up the department, being able to run uh, uh, some kind of some deals with the administration uh, to uh, permit me to hire, and I pay part of the uh, the salary for a while. But it was a it was a nasty, bitter fight that I had with the administration. But you survived uh, it. But I won. <laughs> and I you won. survived it personally. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I survived it personally. I'm and, sitting uh, here. You look happy and, and <laughs> fit. No worse, maybe worse for the wear. I can't say. But uh, you may have been a lot happier before that experience. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah, know. yeah. I, I I got a few gray hairs. I was going to anyway. say you don't have many. Yeah. So so uh, uh, you must have um, mm-hmm. done okay. And then 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 the the last year of my uh, chairmanship. Uh, um, we we hired uh, Vernon Smith. And that turned out well. And uh, that turned out very well. Uh, he was here for uh, a year, and he won the Nobel Prize. And I'm very sure people at University of Arizona, they, they probably have wanted posters for <laughs> George Mason professors out there. But I think we developed a very, very good department. But the uh, the the most important thing, I think, during my tenure as a, as a professor was... Uh, just to stand up to the administration and, uh, and and go out and raise money. And what do you think the future holds for the profession? As I, as I suggested a minute ago, we're a little bit off the beaten path here at George Mason. I think most of us here are proud of it, uh, that we emphasize uh, a whole bunch of stuff that, that people have decided for various reasons not, not to emphasize in graduate education, but we care about the, those understanding of the world that you talked about, mm-hmm. Armin Alchin's viewpoint that and and many others of his of his generation um and we care about public education something you've mm-hmm. devoted an enormous amount of time to with great success um why is that so rare why aren't more economists interested in reaching out to teaching teaching people economics outside of the profession say any ideas any thoughts on that? well um i i really don't uh no i think that um I think many are, are are trying to impress one another. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways we impress one another is to be able to go through uh, mathematical models. Uh, and I, I believe it wasn't it Frank Frank Knight who said uh, he suggested that when you do research and uh, you should always use math and English. Uh, and if the research is any good, get rid of the math and keep the English. And if it's any, if it's bad, keep the math and get rid of the English. <laughs> I but that viewpoint has fallen out of favor. That's a that's an old fashioned viewpoint, but it's a nice, it's an interesting one. Yeah, right. And and um, I, I don't know. I, and I think one of the big problems in our country is is indeed a shortcoming of economists that is to make our subject understandable to the ordinary person, where uh, the where the ordinary mer- uh, person does not fall prey to charlatans and quacks at the political level that would exploit. Uh, his economic ignorance uh, to uh, to confer special favors and to to gain power. That is, if if Americans knew about it, uh, if economists were more responsible in doing our job in teaching economics, we wouldn't find all of the uh, uproar about outsourcing. Uh, we would not find all the uproar about um, about the uh, trade deficits and. We wouldn't find all the support that we uh, find for the minimum wage, 
and many forms of public policy, I, th I think it's a result of public ignorance being exploited uh, by the politicians uh, to uh, be able to grab more power for themselves and to confer special, uh, special favors to uh, special interest groups. And I suppose we can always um, talk about the glass being half empty, uh, the fact that there is an appeal of these, uh, what I would call, and you I think would call, bad public policy or bad legislation. And yet the glass is sometimes perhaps half full. A lot of these seemingly appealing ideas don't make it into, into law, despite the emotional appeals, the quackery that, that seems to sell uh, out on the hustings, but at least some people seem to be somewhat uh, um, insulated from the appeal of it. And I, I suspect a good chunk of that is due to the efforts of uh, yourself. Well, and, and, and my colleagues at George Mason University and, and other, uh, other colleagues that, uh, across the uh, profession that, uh, that write and, and speak in ordinary language uh, for the ordinary man to, uh, uh, to be able to understand. And so I think that politicians have to be a little bit more clever today than they were yesterday to uh, get their agenda over. And then there's another optimistic note is that there are so many free market think tanks, uh, not only in the United States but uh, uh, around the world, that were completely absent in the, uh, in the 50s, 60s, and maybe they're just beginning to emerge a little bit in the 70s. And so... Uh, these ideas uh, put out by these uh, uh, think tanks, they're beginning to challenge conventional uh, wisdom uh, bit by bit. And keep in mind that in our country, this great growth of government uh, that, we, uh, that we have right now, it wasn't, <coughs> it wasn't all of our history. That is, uh, uh, it, it took the calamity of the Great Depression for government to really uh, get its foot into our economy. But however people have been trying to do it, uh, uh, get government into our economy before the Great Depression, if you read the uh, William Jennings Bryan's Across the Gold speech and, and the other, uh, um, uh, and the progressive movement, they were, they, 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 they were just unsuccessful. They wanted to use the government to run other people's lives. <clears throat> yes, they were unsuccessful they until the 30s. And and so 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 what, as Milton Friedman always says that that the ideas uh, that you know, we did we did not get the big government that we have overnight, and we're not going to get out of it overnight. And I think what, that we're headed in the right direction. And then I think history has been on our side as well on the free market side because today nobody can stand up and say as people said during the forties, fifties, and sixties that central planning can lead to greater wealth. Even a distinguished uh, economist like Paul Samuelson, I mean, he bought the idea that, uh, mm -hmm. that a central plan centrally planned economy uh, could be a great engine of wealth. And, um, but nobody will say it now. Yeah, that's, we, we've won some battles. Yeah. And may we win uh, many more down the road. Yeah. My guest today has been Walter Williams, the John M. Olin Professor of Economics at George Mason University. For more Econ Talk, please go to our website, econtalk.org, where you can comment on this podcast, find links and readings related to this conversation, and we'd love to hear from you. Please send me email at roberts, my last name, at gmu.edu. 
I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening.